0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the Quorum Podcast. This is where academic medicine meets remote, austere, and resource limited areas. Hello everybody, it's Tim Cranton again from the College of Remote and Offshore Medicine. I'm going to be doing a podcast today that's, I guess, more of a personal reflection. And the idea being is, is I wanted to talk about being prepared and, and setting yourself up for success. And then when I really thought about it, I went back to a, a series of incidents that I was involved in when I was working uh, in remote healthcare. care. And um, at the time, I, I wasn't prepared because of experience, because of a lack of equipment, because of a lack of kind of general knowledge on, on how... Uh, medical support for the type of operation I was working on kind of went I'm wanting to pass on that experience there there are plenty of things going on in the world today that would be relative to this kind of thing so essentially what i'm I'm, I'm going to talk about today is stories from the battlefield at least that's what i what I call it and I did a, a conference presentation in 2019 in the Czech Republic it, it was about my experience in in Kuwait and Iraq at that particular time. So, you guys that that know me, you'll know that I'm ex British Army. I'm a paramedic in the UK, and and I spent some time in the fire service as well. So, you know, I'd say I'm I'm pretty all rounded when it comes to being a, being a medic and a remote healthcare practitioner. I've worked offshore now for the oil and gas industry for a number of years, but when I started out in remote medicine. It was pretty much as as I left the British Army. So I came out of the a full-time service in October 1991. And um, I was actually looking at getting out of the army earlier, but the Gulf War came up and kind of everything kicked off. And uh, a lot of you kind of know about that. And I had to kind of wait some time after the Gulf War. Unfortunately, I got injured. Um, I had a quite a severe back injury. And uh, I was repatriated back to the UK. And I guess I've got experience as well as being a patient, as well as being a medic, so I can relate as well in those things. I guess that's a story for another day. But basically what I want to talk about today is a personal recollection of incidents that I was involved in in Kuwait. And this is during the period of 1991, 1992. The views that I'm, I'm going to express, these are my own, based on my experiences or certainly my recollection of those experiences. And it's also a reflection on my education as a remote paramedic at that time. Any medical techniques that I'm gonna describe, they're obviously for use in extreme circumstances, and it doesn't necessarily advocate their practice, so I have to kind of say those things. And obviously, where possible, permission's been sought before adding and talking about the information um, that I'm I'm gonna describe I guess the, the, the objectives of today are to share my personal experience and describe the incidents that I was involved in, but it's, it's relevant in terms of sharing the learnings. And what I want is for anybody that's thinking of, of working in a, a country where there's currently conflict. I know I've got plenty of friends right now that are, that are traveling to and working in Ukraine. Um, Some of you may know I've been working in and out of Ukraine since 2014, and it's not the uh, easiest of places to work. Um, Obviously, this depends on where you're working, but with things as they are now, they are certainly most challenging. I have colleagues. I was talking to a colleague only a couple of days ago, actually no, this morning, um, about working for United Nations and working in uh, Mali because we know that the terrorist threat uh, is still working its way through through Africa and beyond. So we have a presence in Africa, and I think that's also um, kind of forgotten about. But we've got medics that are out in the middle of nowhere, out in the, out in the desert, trying to, to, to help people. And I can relate to that, because I know what it's like working in that kind of environment. I also want to talk a little bit about landmines, because some remote medicine may involve, you know, working in areas where there has been conflict. So it's post-conflict. And we're trying to make areas more hospitable uh, for people and populace to be able to move back into those areas and, and continue or carry on their lives, maybe as they did before, before conflict. And that's going to be happening in places like Ukraine as well right now. And I kind of want to talk about you know, what we mean when we talk about a battlefield as well. Okay, so if we're going to be talking about a battlefield, it's a piece of ground on which a battle is or, or was fought. So obviously we need to understand that the dangers of a battlefield can be present even when a war has stopped and there is what we might call peace. It can be described as a place or a situation of strife or conflict. And we need to consider, you know, is is it active? Is there an active threat? So as you, as a remote medic, you need to understand, um, you know, the environment that you're going to. So in terms of preparation, You most definitely need to have a a medical intelligence report um, so that you know and understand what you have available to you, but also the restrictions and the drawbacks of of the location that you're going to be working in. What access do you have to to medical support? Of course, you need to think about people trying to kill you and other people, militias, military personnel, you know, um, what types of munitions are people going to be driving around in vehicles or tanks, or it could be something passive, and this is where I get onto landmines, is it or unexploded ordnance, because these things could be lying dormant, you know, they're waiting to maim or kill, and, and you as a as a, a humanitarian aid worker or you know somebody providing medical help in a in a conflict, um, you know, you need to be aware of other things that could could possibly hurt you or other people. Anyway, so during the period 91 and 1993, I was involved with explosive ordnance disposal operations in Kuwait and Iraq. Uh, and I was the team medic for for a call sign called Mike 4 So our task was to find the things that were laying dormant and obviously those things that are waiting to, to maim or kill, which they did. And unfortunately, those things were very good at it and and I was witness to it. Prior to going out there, I didn't really have an awful lot of trauma experience outside of you know being in hospital. I'd obviously done active service um, in the military, but it was kind of military operations, and we were lucky enough to have incidents that, that didn't hurt people. Or if we did, I wasn't directly involved in them, so I did an awful lot of soldiering, but I didn't necessarily do a lot of medicking, and it wasn't until I came out of the Army uh, and started work doing kind of humanitarian aid and going back into war zones. Did I start to become experienced when it came to to field type trauma? So anyway, going back to, to mines, obviously landmines. They're they're a weapon. They're designed to kill, the maim, and or destroy, uh, and obviously are used on battlefield areas. So a minefield, and you've probably heard of the expression. Considered a defensive or harassing weapon. So, used to slow the enemy down, it's to help deny certain terrain to the enemy and to focus enemy movements into kill zones or to reduce morale by randomly attacking uh, material and personnel. And we certainly know improvised explosive devices that were used in uh, places like Iraq and Afghanistan did that to uh, devastating effect. 80%, so here's a statistic for you, of landmine casualties are civilian. Um, and children are the most effective age group. So again, in terms of that legacy thing, we're not just talking about you know soldiers that are get injured by these things. we're talking a considerable number of civilians, and most killings occur in times of peace. Certainly, when you're working in these areas, never actually knowing a hundred percent that your next step or move could be your last. and so that's a a big stressor and that's something that people need to consider if you're if you're looking at going into an area you know like this you may be required to to wear heavy body armor but you need to think about the environment that you're going to be wearing that in so heavy body armor that's uncomfortable and distracting when you need to concentrate. And we're not talking just about the, the EOD operators that are locating and then trying to render safe munitions. We're talking about, you know, maybe you guys as medics having to provide medical care. But at the same time, you're going to be restricted by the personal protective equipment that you're going to have to wear. I certainly know some of you, again, acting as medics out there, um, are carrying weapon systems as well. And these things can get in your way and they can most definitely affect your safety and your performance. So again, if you're going to be doing that kind of job, whatever personal protective equipment that you are required to wear, you need to make sure that it fits you. You need to make sure that you're comfortable in it. And you need to make sure that it's functional. It's not going to get caught on any other equipment. You're able to kind of conveniently place medical equipment. um, And that can be medical equipment for yourself, not necessarily for other people. We carry things like individual first aid kits. So making sure you can treat yourself is obviously important. Where you locate things like tourniquets, they shouldn't be hanging off you like a Christmas tree um, where they can get caught or tagged on things. I'm certainly an advocate of making sure thing is in a pouch that protects my, my equipment, but that I've got ready access to it. And again, when we're talking about the environment, working in temperatures of Uh, I certainly know on the border, you know, with Kuwait and Iraq, we were looking at 55 plus degrees centigrade. So obviously that's, you know, the environment as it is, then add to that your personal protective equipment, you know, think about other people wearing bomb suits. And again, you've got to appreciate those things and then you have to apply medicine. We encountered a lot of uh, mines and arguably that was our job to go out and find these things. But these mines weren't you know made in iraq and kuwait a lot of these mines were made internationally so we're looking predominantly italian mines and uh we had uh chinese we had russian we had one or two american made and these were ones though that the american ones were ones that would be dropped so they would be what we call an area denial munition that would be dropped in a in a canister. The canister would open up. They would drop onto an area of ground. One of them that was actually called a gator um, had its own trip wires, um, so you didn't have to just stand on the the mine itself. You could actually trigger it by triggering a a, a trip wire. But it also had a brain, so it was designed to um, self-destruct after a period of time, but we found out that that didn't work and that couldn't be relied upon. So as as an EOD uh, team, we would have to go and locate these and destroy them in situ. And just so that you're aware, all demining incidents worldwide are recorded there's actually a database of demining accidents. Um, That's held in the Global Conventional Weapons Destruction Repository, and that's in Virginia in the USA. So this was established by the Center for International Stabilization and Recovery, uh, and again, at the James Madison University. If anyone's interested, you can drop us a line and I can uh, can send you a link on that, because uh, it makes some interesting reading. Let's just talk a little bit about blast injury, because then we can maybe appreciate the the things that you might come across in terms of trauma. So blast injury works actually in in phases. So you've got the primary part that includes the blast force, and that's going to cause injuries to, to ears and to the lungs and the and the gastrointestinal tract. Uh, and that's the blast force itself. And then the secondary part is is the missiles. So that's the the construction or the parts of the of the mine that's designed to fragment and then be propelled um, towards the the enemy or the person. So you can expect quite you know severe penetrating trauma that's caused by those things and then we've got the the tertiary phase so that's impact so the blast itself may blow a person off of their feet onto the ground onto a hard surface so we could expect multiple injuries uh, potentially there and then and then the final phase the the quaternary phase is where we can expect burns so we're going to have hot gas we'll have secondary fire because we get a, a rapid deflagration from from a blast uh device And then we can have dust and smoke through inhalation. And and there could be crush injuries too, because if the person was inside a building when a a missile struck or an explosive device struck, you could have structural collapse as well. So you could expect injury from that. If you were an EOD operator, so this is the the guys that I was working with. I would say this is a a podcast and and I can't really show you pictures at the moment, but imagine the hurt locker. And imagine the, the the suits that the equipment that the, those guys are wearing, and it's pretty close to what our guys um, were having to wear when they were clearing mines. And unfortunately, some of the guys chose not to uh, to do that because. Um, it was very restrictive, so they kind of scaled down the, uh, the equipment that they had. Mainly, the, the, the equipment that they had covered their, their chest and their torso. There would be some kind of flap that would cover the groin area. And then we had thigh pads and we had kind of shin pads. Otherwise, everything else would be kind of a you know standard type dress. There, w- there would be a helmet, a blast helmet as well. So, as I said, during that time, um, I was working with a group of explosive ordnance disposal engineers, and we were tasked with clearing Kuwait of damaged and unexploded ordnance after the Iraqi forces had been expelled by the Allied coalition. In terms of the facilities we had, well, we had what we would call a med evac, but that was kind of limited. And when I talk about med we had a ground vehicle. We were the medic on the ground with the team. So what it meant was we provided our own medivac. So whereas I would drive out into the field during the day and I would drive the ambulance, if we had a, an incident and we had any casualties, then I would default to the, to the paramedic medic role and would be treating the, uh, the person in the back of the ambulance. And then somebody else within the team would drive the vehicle to the hospital. Otherwise, we would call for a helicopter and we would also most likely travel with the patient inside the helicopter as well. So it wasn't that we were just providing medical treatment on the ground. There was an expectation that as the medic, you would provide the Medivac service as well. And we were some considerable distance from hospital, uh, from definitive care. So remember, guys, this is 1991. So we're talking about no tourniquets. There were certainly no cat tourniquets in use at the time, nothing like junctional tourniquets. We didn't have hemostatic agents, no such thing as TXA, no blood products, long evacuation times um, if there was no helicopter. And as I said, I had limited kind of real world Battlefield trauma experience. And I was extremely limited when it came to the equipment I had. Now, as I said, that was 1991. But get to, you know, 2022, potentially you may find that when you get to a work site, everything you think you should have, you may not have. So if you can be involved in a project and have some kind of influence about what medical equipment. Is going to be a project site, then that's going to really help help you, you know. And I've certainly turned up at locations within the last couple of years and gone, "Wow, I wish I'd have known um, that this is what I was going to have." And then I'd have to get back on the phone and say, "Hey guys, you know, if we really want to provide a service here, then we're going to need some equipment." And it's surprising because you may find that somebody non-medical has literally gone off a list that they uh, that they found on the internet. And uh, it may not have the things that you might expect to have in a in a remote site. And I know of guys. I was talking to a colleague uh, only yesterday, and he was saying that he had to pre-deploy with his own equipment. And this was based on the equipment that he could actually get get together in the period of time that uh, that he had before he deployed. I want to talk about um, a particular case. And this involved an Italian Valmara uh, 69. So, a Valmara 69, an anti personnel blast fragmentation mine. Um, we had two um, deminers from the UK that were involved as casualties. And uh, I was the medic for the team at that time. And we were clearing these mines from beach def- defenses. If any of you have ever heard of the Bouncing Betty type mine, this is a mine that that has kind of two parts to its initiation. So initially uh, you have an initial initiation of the device and the top part of the, the device jumps to around waist height. Uh, it pulls on a, on a cable, functions a secondary detonator and then at waist height, the, uh, the, the body of the mine fragments and obviously you get the blast. Um, This is a horrible, horrible weapon um, designed to kill and maim. Um, It has a kill range of around 60 to 65 meters. And that's kind of worthy of of note as well, that kill range. So we've got guys that were clearing beach defenses. So again, imagine this environment, very sandy, loose sand, and we're looking at a considerable number of obstacles, barbed wire, um, posts, and uh, and, a, and a rising water table as well. So when it came to doing the the clearance operation itself, you had a two man team, and one of them was the was the deminer. One of the one uh, was the operator doing the main task, which was using a mine detector to locate the body of the mine, and then they would have to dig to the mine, locate the the part where they could um, initiate what we call a render safe procedure and either blow it in situ or remove part of the mine so that the detonator was removed which would render it safe so separate those pieces uh, and then put it to one side and then carry on and find the next one and you had an assistant who essentially would would stand behind them and then once the, the render-safe procedure had been carried out, they would go up to them and they would clear those pieces of the munition and move them to an area that was safe so that they could be dealt with later on. So you had two operators. So in this particular incident, an operator had located a metal post that the mine was attached to, and this was buried. It would have been at least two or three feet um, in the sand, because we have to appreciate that sand is constantly moving as, as the tide comes in and out. So the sand was wet um, as the tide was rising at the time. And it was believed that whilst trying to uncover the mine, the operator actually fell into the hole that he was that he was digging. Uh, this is this is in accordance to the report. And unfortunately what happened is is the mine was functioned as a result. Rescue and recovery operating procedures had only been put in place the day before. And the reason for this was, is, is I was relatively new to the team. You know, I was the green horn. And I was essentially told, you know, you just need to be here, be here with your med kit and just be ready to do something if there's a problem. And I remember thinking at the time, well, okay, but... You know, what do I do if this happens? What do I do if that happens? Um, it was like, don't worry about it. Everything will be fine. You just, we'll, we'll, we'll get you there. You know, you just need to be ready to go. So I know I wasn't happy. And this was after the first kind of couple of days of doing the job. So I went back to my boss. And this is it, guys. What I'm encouraging you to do, if there's any element of the job that you are just not happy with, in terms of your safety, your ability to be able to provide um, an appropriate level of care, then do not be afraid to speak up. You have to speak up and, and, and say something. You owe it to yourself and you owe it to the guys that, um, that you're going to be treating. And I, I actually went to my boss the day before and, and I said to him, Doc, I'm not happy. Um, I've literally just been told to shut up, be quiet um, and just be ready to go. Um, We don't appear to have any, you know, operating procedures in terms of whether or not I'm expected to go into the minefield, whether or not the team will bring um, the patient out from the minefield. I really don't know, you know, what, what, what I should be doing. And my boss said, okay, no problem. We'll sort that out. And what he did is he went to the team leader and said, hey, you know, what's going on? You know, how come we don't have an SOP for casualty evacuation from the minefield? We really need to get this in place. And uh, unfortunately, that upset the team leader. I mean, it is what it is. And uh, he wasn't very happy with me. But thankfully, we actually did rescue and recovery drills. So prior to this particular incident, and this is, like I said, the day before, we did these rescue and recovery drills. And We did it, obviously, in a safe place. We made up a mock minefield. So we knew what we would do and what had to happen in the event that one of the guys went down. And uh, the guy in question that that got injured, I remember, again, on on the day of the incident. And again, we were reflecting and we were talking about the SOPs and stuff we'd done the day before. And uh, he turned around to me and he says, well, if anything happens, at least you're here, Doc. Uh, and, I, and I'll never forget that because, um, you know, the guys, I think they also felt that maybe they should have said something, but they were maybe afraid of, you know, losing their jobs. I mean, these guys were on a really, you know, a big wad of money. Um, there was a lot of money to be earned at that time doing the job that we were doing, but they kind of didn't want to make a fuss. But they 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 were glad that I was able to represent them, I think and again that's something for you guys as well you need to be advocates of the people that you're in charge of and you're looking after so you're also a voice for them and if if you know they feel unsafe or there's something that they're not happy with and you have a duty of care to them before they're injured before they become ill and you know be prepared to voice their concerns especially when it comes to safety and and, and the potential for harm anyway so when the incident happened, I was standing around 80 to 100 meters away. Um, I was actually on another section of beach with the team leader, and we were marking the next section of beach we were going to clear. And um, as I said to you before, the VS, the, the Valmara uh, VS 69, it has a 65 meter approximately kill zone, and we were stood around 80 to 100 meters away when it functioned. I remember at the time thinking, what happened. I didn't remember there being any controlled demolitions um, happening because myself and the team leader would normally be involved in that. And that was my instant thought. Oh, maybe they were just clearing something. But then the next thing is, is we see this kind of cloud of gray smoke. And as I said, we we felt the blast wave. So we were that close. And obviously the screaming and the, the shouting that was coming from the uh, the secondary operator that was stood behind the uh, the first one. Obviously, we had to get from from where I was and we had to get into the minefield and we did so via a safe lane. But again, in hindsight, it was really difficult to see those safe lane markings because they, they'd also been involved in the blast. So we had kind of pegs, we had like little red flags and we had mine tape. And you have to ask the question, was it safe? Now, in in tactical medicine, we have these phases of care, care under fire is one of them, and this is where you have a direct threat that's still there. So potentially, certainly for us as rescuers, there was still a direct threat present because there would have been other uh, minds that, that would have been around the one that had functioned. And again, it was difficult to see what was safe and what was not safe, but... My mind was focused on my primary, you know, primarily on my patient. Thankfully, I could see that the, the assistant was uninjured. He was walking around and no signs of bleeding, but I could see that the, the, the guy that had been injured was lying face down in wet sand, couldn't see his face. Um, I did my blood sweep and immediately applied digital pressure to the groin and the armpits where there were gross, gross soft tissue injury. There were other guys there, and I instructed them to do the same. And we got a stretcher, got the guy. Literally, we just picked him up, put him on the stretcher, and we moved out of the minefield. So in terms of his injuries, and again, this is how I kind of recollect it, bilateral arms and legs, uh, severe blast injuries. We applied direct pressure to anything that we could essentially see that was bleeding and we wound packed with the gauze pads from the trauma dressing. So imagine, open open up your trauma dressing, tear the bandage arms off so you're just left with with the gauze pad, that's what we were using for wound packing. So anything that we could see that was bleeding, we just stuffed that into the hole, we packed several into the same hole. I remember doing one of the thigh groin areas and uh, and just packing as many bandage gauzes in there as I possibly could. Patient's airway was open. We kept him in a modified prone position, basically because I wanted to keep his airway open. Um, and we had better access to his injuries, if that makes sense. But he was vocalizing, so I knew that he, he, he was conscious and the airway was open. Very difficult to make a, a, an assessment of the chest. But at that time, I could see that it, it, it was clear. Um, after removal of the blast vest, there didn't appear to be any penetrating trauma to the, to the chest. Circulation, our main focus was reassess, 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 maintaining pressure on the wounds um, and controlling bleeding. Like I said, no combat goals, no tourniquets, no, no junctional tourniquet devices. We literally had to maintain pressure hands-on gauze. I considered doing IV, IO access. And at the time, that was a default. It was like every trauma patient got IV access. I didn't have the ability to do IO access, sorry, at the time. IV was the only one. Uh, I considered putting uh, an IV in the dorsum of the foot because I took a boot off and uh, I remember that looking okay, and it looked like it had a nice vein. And then I realized that because of the size of the injuries that were further up the leg, then that was really just a waste of time. So I, I, I abandoned that option. And we just considered just bleeding control. No head injury noted. Uh, the patient was responsive to voice. So the immediate thing really was for this patient just needed to get to definitive care. And at that time, we had our helicopter operator monitoring radio traffic. And they used to literally turn and burn on a helipad at a hospital so that if they if they got a call or if they heard that there was an incident with one of the EOD teams, um, they could immediately um, lift the aircraft and come towards you. My team leader thought we would go in the ambulance, and I said, no, no, we, we need a helicopter, even getting our patient into the ambulance. Well, it wasn't an ambulance, actually. It was, a, it was a Land Rover, and it would have been a back seat. So, again, getting our patient in there, yeah, that just doesn't bear thinking about. The helicopter was, was the best option, and that's what I asked for. So after the initial care, um, we got a helicopter. The skill of the pilot's unbelievable. I literally remember this helicopter balancing with one skid on a curbstone and the other skid several inches off of the road, um, kind of in a semi-hover. Um, and it was in a road and there were lighting poles and there were buildings next door. And, and yeah, just... Thinking, how on earth did he manage to land there? And we literally just walked off of the beach, up the beachhead, up into the to the main road, and we walked the, the the stretcher into the helicopter. And like I said, we were the medivac. So there was myself and three other team guys. Thankfully, I had other guys within my team who had had some really good uh, first aid training. Uh, not just from me um, but from the time that they'd spent in in the service and uh, that's another thing as well you know I want to pass on if you're going to be a remote medic you've got to have help you can't do it all on your own on the ground so if you have the opportunity to train other people in your team in first aid then you really really need to do that and train them in the basics, it's about getting the basics right, which is kind of what comes to the fore in this particular incident, is that's what we did. We did C, A, B, C, and we did the basics and we stuck to it and we did it well. And throughout the incident, our patient um, was conscious. Certainly in the evacuation phase, obviously the wound packing and maintaining pressure, that um, we maintained that we literally did not let go of the patient. There was four of us with with our hands and our fingers, you know, in 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 the holes, holding on to the wound material. I remember the patient stopped responding a couple of minutes into the into what was around a ten minute flight. I attempted to open up his airway, uh, put an OPA in. But the patient choked on that and he spat it out and then he kind of came around and we were just talking, talking, talking just to keep him talking and keep him awake. So again, communication with your patient. You must talk to your patients when you're treating them. Thankfully, respiration stayed clear. He was breathing. Um, again, C and it was reassessed and it was maintaining pressure on the wounds. And then we tried to cover any microbleeds. So we'd controlled the major hemorrhage any blood loss is not good. So we were working on keeping anything else inside this patient. Like I said, he, he stayed responsive to voice. We didn't do any hypothermia management because we just didn't have anything there. I think we assume that because it was 40 to 50 degrees outside, that the patient would stay warm. But you need to know that, that even in temperatures like that, our patients can still become hypothermic. So having some form of hypothermia management is going to help those blood clotting factors work. We had a five, uh, sorry, 10 minute flight to the hospital. And when we finally handed over, I had to explain that the patient was lying on their on their stomach, on their chest, in this modified recovery position to keep the airway open. And I think because of the extent of the injuries, people thought that the patient was lying with his head to one side, and that wasn't that wasn't the case. Um, they thought he was lying on his back, and he wasn't. He was actually lying in, in, a, in this kind of modified prone position. And arguably, that helped to keep his, his airway open. So in terms of a, a missed report, And this is what I gave when I handed him over to the um, ED staff. The mechanism was mind blast uh, and the person was over the mine when it detonated. Injury sustained, massive soft tissue uh, tissue trauma to all four limbs, high dejunctions, barotrauma to the lung, question mark, couldn't tell. Signs and symptoms, no radial pulses uh, due to injuries. Alert and responsive to voice, no respiration rate recorded, no pearl recorded. He was A on AVPU. I would not let the patient close his eyes, and we kept talking to him. Treatment, improvised wound packing of junctions and covering minor bleeds on limbs. Constantly maintain pressure by hand throughout the evacuation. Patient is in a modified face-down position to maintain open airway and allow good access to injuries. And it was at that point that we were pulled off Of the patient by the emergency staff, who then turned him over, and the patient stopped responding. Yeah, that was quite a harrowing incident, especially for almost the first time out—a baptism of fire, I think I would call it. And I, and you know, when I look back at it, I definitely wasn't prepared for it, but I was prepared for it. I think I was probably more prepared um, than I prepared to admit. And I think what it emphasised were it was about getting the basics right. I'd come from um, from an active medical unit where we did an awful lot of training. So again, guys, this is another thing for you. If you find yourself in situations where you're getting a lot of downtime, there is absolutely no reason why you cannot keep your skills up to date. Doing training, doing some basic first aid training for yourself and for the guys, In your team. Keep training. Never stop training. Certainly me working offshore, I don't spend an awful lot of time, you know, doing hands-on kind of trauma. I get a lot of general healthcare, you know, type types of things. So again, practice, practice, practice. We do not train until we get it right. We train until we cannot get it wrong. So it's really important to maintain good basic skills, guys. In terms of the outcome for this patient, the patient was transferred to another hospital that had better uh, trauma capabilities and surgical capabilities. And unfortunately, our colleague died um, in surgery six hours later. Uh, What killed him was pulmonary barotrauma, uh, hypoxia, and hypovolemia. I think we did the best we could with what we had. But certainly what we had could have been so much better had I had the opportunity and a good appreciation of the things that I might come across and I might have to deal with. As I said, I I do feel we did the basics right. And it's really important again, guys, that, that you make sure that you do. The basics right. Don't go down the path of trying to overcomplicate things when it's unnecessary. Think about your priorities and what you need to do for your patients. Direct pressure plus wound packing plus maintaining pressure and keeping the red stuff in was vitally important in this case. And again, having people to help me. Basic airway management as well. Not all of our patients need airway adjuncts. They don't necessarily need an NPA or an OPA or intubating. Having a patient in a position where they can maintain their own airway is also very important. That could be sitting up. That could be lying on their side. They could be propped up. It can be improvised. So long as it's comfortable for the patient and they're able to manage their own airway. Arguably, what we did worked uh, and the patient um, kept breathing throughout. I have got other incidents that I, that I could talk about. And as I said today, it was about setting yourself up for success and being prepared. And hopefully, through a reflection of an incident that I was part of, I've able to pass on some kind of message there that will help you when it comes to preparation. Even if it's just sharing the incident, um, these things happen, guys, and they can happen and they can happen when you least expect them so the more that you're prepared in terms of your personal self you know your mental attitude your training in terms of you know your your um, abilities being prepared in terms of having the right equipment trauma care has come so far you know since that time and arguably we were kind of right at the beginning of it in the early 90s is is when we actually saw Tactical medicine come to the fore. So again, make sure that you're up to date also with guidelines as well. Get a really good appreciation for the environment that you're going to be working in, but also of the people that you're going to be working with and the things that you're going to be responsible for and the things that you're likely to be doing. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to to share this with you. Hopefully, there's been some learning in there uh, for you. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to contact me, t.cranton at corom.edu.mt. If you have any questions, I'd be more than happy to talk about this particular case and, uh, and other cases that I was involved in during that time. And uh, obviously, the, um, the learnings that I've taken away from that. And arguably, that stood me in good stead as I've progressed through my career to date, and I'm thankfully in a position to be able to pass on those learnings to people like yourselves. Again, thank you very much. I look forward to the next time. This has been a presentation from the College of Remote and Offshore Medicine Foundation. If you would like to earn CPD credit for this podcast, you can join the Council of Members. Being a member of the college gives you free CPD credits, free access to the virtual field guide, and discounts on our e-learning courses. You can join the team on the college website, which is corum.c Corum.org.